Uh, the first talk that I gave last fall was about um, Gil had given me some direction as to what he wanted. Uh, he thought I might want to talk about, which was what brought me to practice and what supports me in continuing to practice. And this time he didn't say anything, so I had to come up with. Um, I had to look at what is it that I that I thought I had some familiarity with with respect to the Dharma that that I felt like I could talk about. And after some reflection on this, what I decided was um, what I'm most familiar with is um, ignorance and fear. So tonight we're going to talk about ignorance and fear. And I realized that... um, this talk then really is a kind of an extension of my first talk about what is it that brought me to, to practice and um, what's kind of at the core of, of my practice now is, is still dealing with um, ignorance and fear. Let's see. So one of the first questions um, that comes up is, well, what, what is ignorance? Sometimes we think of ignorance as just um, not knowing. You know, there's so many things in this world to know about. Um, how to use Windows 98 or, uh, you know, who won the, the baseball game yesterday, um, uh, sports statistics, um, all, all of those things. But um, What's been helpful for me is to kind of mispronounce the word and instead of saying ignorance, saying ignorance. What is it that we're, what is it that's being ignored, not being looked at? One of the mm, descriptions that I've heard over the last few years by, by some Dharma teacher was talking about ignorance as kind of a, a mental strategy for avoiding what's unpleasant or uncomfortable, um, unwanted, unacceptable, or threatening. And what then occurred to me was, well, so what's wrong with that? You know, it wouldn't be nice to have a comfortable life. You know, why look at things that make you uncomfortable or, or feel threatened? Isn't that, an, isn't that maybe a path to... Uh, Less suffering. So I decided to um, see what the Buddha had to say about this. And I went on the Access to Insight website where you can um, search by by words. And there's a Pali word, um, which I'm not sure I know how to pronounce, is uh, avijja, A-V-I-J-J-A, which is sometimes translated as unawareness or ignorance or obscured awareness or delusion about the nature of the mind. So one way to look at ignorance is um, what is it that we're not bringing awareness to? Let's see. It turns out that ignorance actually has its own sutta as well. I didn't didn't know this. It's the avijja sutta is part of the sun... Samyutta Nikaya Sutta. And I wanted to read a little bit from that because I think it it helps me to look at um, well, why not ignorance? Isn't you know, it seems like a lot of people try that one. So so this is something that, that the Buddha taught to his um, his followers, um, and I'll, I'll read to you this. Um, I've heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove and at Apindika's monastery. Then he addressed the monks, Monks, yes, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, Monks, ignorance is the leader in the attainment of unskillful qualities, followed by lack of conscience and lack of concern. In an unknowledgeable person, immersed in ignorance, wrong views arise. In one of wrong views, wrong resolve arises. 
in one of wrong resolve, wrong speech. In one of wrong speech, wrong action. In one of wrong action, wrong livelihood. In one of wrong livelihood, wrong effort. In one of wrong effort, wrong mindfulness. In one of wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration arises. Clear knowing is the leader in the attainment of skillful qualities, followed by conscience and concern. In a knowledgeable person, immersed in clear knowing, right view arises. In one of right view, right resolve arises. In one of right resolve, right speech. In one of right speech, right action. In one of right action, right livelihood. In one of right livelihood, right effort. In one of right effort, right mindfulness. In one of right mindfulness, right concentration arises. So in this sutta, we see that um, ignorance is going the wrong way on the Eightfold Path. It's, it's leading us away from the, the eight um, facets of the path that, that the Buddha described. And clear knowing is what's um, described as leading us uh, in the right direction on the Eightfold Path. Let's see. So a little bit more that, was, that I, I found here. Um, and what is ignorance? What is the origin of ignorance? What is the cessation of ignorance? What is the way leading to the cessation of ignorance? Not knowing about dukkha, not knowing about the origins of dukkha, not knowing about the cessation of dukkha, not knowing about the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. This is called ignorance. With the arising of the taints, from there is the arising of ignorance. With the cessation of the taints, there is the cessation of ignorance. The way leading to the cessation of ignorance is just the noble eightfold path. And then finally, um, there's the uh, 12 steps of dependent origination. I don't know if any of you have heard of that. This is, is kind of a, a more detailed look at how um, suffering arises. And sometimes it's said that the, the Four Noble Truths is sort of a condensation of the 12 steps of dependent origination into a, a, a form that's a little bit easier to remember. But in the description of, the, the, um, of dependent origination, the very first link in that chain is... Ignorance, and it says, from ignorance as a requisite condition comes mental fabrications. From mental fabrications comes consciousness, and it goes on. And at the very end, um, uh, from birth as a requisite condition, then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair come into play. Such is the origination of this entire mass of stress and suffering. So ignorance really lies at the root of suffering, of dukkha. And therefore, it's, it's a very, um, as I started to, to, to look a little deeper into the, the suttas, I, I realized that um, ignorance is kind of like really at the core of, of, of Buddha's teachings, that that's really something that um, drives this whole process. And so how do we, how do we, um, how do we deal with ignorance? Well, the, the teaching that has been brought to the West is um, the teaching of mindfulness meditation where we train our minds, we train ourselves to sit and be still and let, let the mind settle down and let the body settle down and then let those things that um, are being held out of our awareness that we habitually um, deflect our awareness from or dull our awareness to, um, let those arise and just be seen. Um, 
for me, um, the retreat experience, going to long retreats, is, is very useful in this regard, that you can get very settled and um, things can, can appear that wouldn't normally appear in your, your day-to-day life with all its activity. But you don't have to do that for everything. For me, the kind of a, a signpost of, of there being something that I'm ignoring um, that seems to cut through even the day-to-day chatter is fear. As I've looked back on my life, or at least this particular lifetime, I, I'm not sure about pre- previous lifetimes, but in this lifetime, since my earliest memory, I can see that I've um, spent a lot of time trying to come to grips with fear, um, being left at, at nursery school at the age of three and, and feeling abandoned and, and feeling um, in this kind of unknown environment. Um, as I got older, I'd go to, to kindergarten and be confronted by playground bullies who would taunt me and um, hold the doors of the school closed so I couldn't get in. And, um, you know, over the years, the, the, the sources of the fear changed. You know, as I got into high school, there was the, the fear of fitting in socially and dating and um, going to college, concerns about grades and um, later about career. And now as I approach middle age, or, well, actually as I am middle-aged, um, it concerns about retirement, financial security, um, loneliness, old age, sickness, and death um, are all there. They're all, all um, conditions that will from time to time trigger this, this experience that, that I call fear. When I was younger, the fear would often manifest itself as, um, well, when I was very young, the fear would manifest itself as wanting to run away, to just get away from whatever the object was or whatever the, the conditions were that were causing this unpleasant experience to arise. Um, And then later, I found that even if I didn't leave physically, that I would run away psychologically, that I would would leave. And quite often there would be a paralysis, kind of a physical paralysis and also kind of a, a mental paralysis. There'd be a lot of energy in the body and yet very little action addressing what was happening in the present. And likewise with the mind, a lot of the activity was um, going off into thinking about what was going to happen in the future and, and getting very caught up in what all of this meant would mean in the future and having very little presence of being what was happening right then. So there was kind of a um, running away from the present moment. And there was also kind of a positive feedback mechanism in this that as, as a certain amount of fear would arise, there would be fear of fear, you know, fear of, oh, this is coming again. And, and that would sort of um, feed back on itself until this whole, this whole experience felt very solid, very real, very um, unchangeable. Like this, this was it. This was really reality. And I went through quite a bit of my life with that um, experience of fear. It changed somewhat as as, um, I got a little bit older and um, my marriage was ending. I got into um, psychotherapy. And it helped very much to have somebody to talk to and start start to... to make a movement towards examining what is what is this all about? What's going on here? However, I, I, I still brought to that experience 
kind of an expectation that with enough therapy, with enough talking about it, these conditions would never arise again, that I would just be completely free of fear. I'd never have to, I'd never have to deal with um, these conditions arising. And after five years, I left somewhat disappointed that it still showed up. And eventually, it was, it was really fear that, that brought me to this practice about, about four years ago. And about three years ago, I was on a, a long retreat, my first long retreat at um, Vajrapani. And there was a teacher there, John Travis, who teaches at Spirit Rock and, and is a, a longtime friend of Gill's. And he gave a Dharma talk about fear. He called it the river of fear that runs through the middle of our experience or the middle of our land. And everybody arranges their life, arranges the way they work, so that they don't have to turn, so they don't have to face that river. Every, everybody has built, lived in caves or built their houses with the doors facing in a different direction. And all of this energy goes into not looking at, at fear. And his suggestion was that what we need to do is, is very, very simple. It's just simply turning from looking away to turning and facing the fear. Nothing else has to be done. We don't have to run towards it or conquer it or bargain with it or um, anything else. It's just a matter of simply bringing one's attention to that experience. And I was quite moved by that, that Dharma talk. It, it really started something in motion for me of seeing that, that I could change my relationship to this reoccurring um, experience. And so what I'd find is that I would start to bring investigation. Um, quite often about four in the morning I would wake up with you know the body just raging and the mind raging. And knowing that there was nothing to be done except to pay attention. So I'd go into lying meditation raising my my knees up and just breathing and paying attention to the energy as it flowed through my body you know the the sensations in the abdomen quite often there'd be contraction there might be um, some um, pulsation um, uh, twitching um, sometimes a Difficulty breathing, a, a kind of a, a moderate um, contraction in the upper chest. In, in my head, I would notice contraction and, and pulsing, um, heat. And what I discovered was, as I just paid attention to these things passing, that it wasn't solid, that it wasn't a solid, um, unchanging experience, that it, it was actually changing all the time. And that as I brought attention to it, it, it seemed to pass reasonably quickly. And the thoughts, if I paid attention to the, what was going on in the mind, quite often it was planning for what was I going to do later in the day, what was going to happen, things that quite honestly I had no clue to. Um, one of the one of the things that I've I've seen is that as much as I have as a much aversion and dislike as I have for that experience, I realize they also have some great attachment to fear. In some ways, it's sort of. Um, when it felt very solid, it felt like in some ways it, it helped define who I was. 
And there's a, a poem that I want to read by a spirit rock teacher, Robert Hall, uh, about this. It's entitled, Our Friend Neurosis. Neurosis bites at your heels, a reminder that, steer, that fear is the lifestyle for you. Never forget, you could be abandoned at any moment. That little pain in your belly is going to require surgery. Everything you've worked for will be meaningless when everybody finds out about your chocolate binges. Maybe your mother did it. Could be the first grade teacher who made you empty the wastebaskets. Every time someone smiles warmly, some muscle deep in your throat contracts with apprehension. Neurosis is so strong. How could we live without it? No drama makes for boring days. So there's also that part of it, too, is that, that I found that um, I had come to have a certain reliance on fear to motivate me, that I'd just kind of float through life and ignore things, and then fear would, you know, I'd suddenly realize, oh, my God, it's like I've got the 48-hour notice and they're going to turn off the gas. And so fear would arise and it would move me to action. So investigation, uh, mindfulness, meditation, and um, some contemplation practice is very helpful to start to to look at for the things that we ignore, and, and for me particularly fear. But I've also found that sometimes it takes more than that. There's another practice that was brought to the West by the Vipassana teachers, and that is uh, loving-kindness meditation, or metta. And I was curious uh, how many of you have had some experience with metta or loving-kindness practice? Okay, quite a few. Well, for those of you who haven't, um, mindfulness practice is a, a realistic practice. It's really looking at what is happening at any given moment and not trying to make it any different or not trying to put any spin on it, just really um, being present for what's happening now. Uh, Loving-kindness practice is a little different. It's an it's a, um, idealistic practice in that it's a practice to cultivate certain qualities um, of the heart and mind, certain acceptance, certain kindness, certain openness and compassion for oneself, for one's um, uh, benefactors, one's friends, people that are kind of neutral, um, difficult people, and all beings. So that's sort of the, the basic instruction for loving kindness to to really um, cultivate a, um, an openness and an acceptance of the heart. And what's proved particularly helpful for me was a, um, an article that I read by Ajahn Samedo um, fairly recently about bringing loving kindness for those parts of oneself that are most unacceptable. Those moods, those thoughts, those feelings, those experiences, uh, those mind states, those habitual patterns that we just can't stand about ourselves. And the way it was described and has been very helpful for me is that when we're unwilling to look at some aspect of our experience, 
some meanness of heart that we might have, some fear, um, some pettiness, that until we look at it, it's going to keep crying for attention. And until we can bring, hold it in our awareness um, without aversion and not, uh, not necessarily promoting it or trying to, to build it up, but to just let it be seen and seen through, it will never be released. I used to think that I was being held prisoner by fear, but what I recognized is that really I'm the one that was holding fear prisoner by not by not looking at it, and if I can just um, allow it to be and allow it to be seen, that it wants to liberate, it wants it wants to be let go of, and that was been a kind of a radical shift in the way that I've seen uh, fear. And so it's allowed me to um, be more accepting and more aware of um, what lies underneath the fear. You know, the, the sense of vulnerability, perhaps a sen- sense of loneliness. Um, you know, just a, a sense of um, uncertainty about what's to come next. And I found that it's it's really brought a certain lightness in starting to let go of some of the some of the fear that um, I've been carrying around and calling labeling me or mine. So I want to I want to end with a um, very short reading from this this book called The Places That Scare You by Pema Chodron. It's actually a, a short paragraph by another writer, um, Charlotte Joko Beck. The secret of life that we are all looking for is just this, to develop through sitting and daily life practice the power and courage to return to that which we have spent a lifetime hiding from, to rest in the bodily experience of the present moment, even if it is a feeling of being humiliated, of failing, of abandonment, of unfairness. So that's what I have to say. And I'd be very interested in hearing from some of you about... um, your experience with ignorance and fear and what, what you found to be um, helpful in dealing with it and, and unhelpful, what's been skillful and unskillful. So, or if you have any questions, uh, I'd welcome those as well. So, um, um, for me, what was uh, uh, a change in my life was um, when I... Somebody said to me, you know, well, sure, you're afraid, but do it anyways. And I just kind of took that as my, uh, just something that I follow, you know. And, you know, I find that come up all the time, you know, fear comes up, you know, something I don't want to do or something I'm really uncomfortable doing. And then just being able to just be, you know, do what I need to do anyways, you know. And that was, that was a really helpful reminder for me. Mm. Thank you.
friendship that went bad. So there's a tendency certainly to self-protect, but also to be convinced that I will self-protect for the next month and will not interact or something to that extent. And I can see that chaos of my mind going back and forth when I try to hold on to a concept of some the conviction of how things are. And I think sometimes resting in that uncertainty That's one of the things that, that Pema Chodron talks about in, in her book is the is um, developing a an ability to stay with the uncertainty and not not contract around um, views or um, emotions. Yes. Um, a couple things I guess. <coughs> I appreciate hearing about the topic from here because um, often I felt that uh, most people are not aware walking around without fear. You know, it's wrong with you, I'm afraid. So uh, it's, it's good to have it out in the open. Hear about it. Um, and I guess the other. Experience, uh, I guess, for me, it's, it sometimes feels like it's a force to be reckoned with that I have to grapple with it. When it seems like really it's uh, not the only part, but you know, there's a power in it, what I make of it. And if you let go, it's not powerful anymore. So, Thank you. Yes, Audrey. When I'm feeling fear or any other unpleasant experience uh, to the degree where I may be paralyzed and not really be able to act on the situation, uh, I just experience it in my body. I find it. I would kind of describe it to myself. I hang out with it. And without thinking about the story, and that um, it dissipates and leaves me clear to think through what it is I need to do. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Also reminded me, um, I talked with a woman who's a a therapist in our in our sangha, and she talked about something that's sometimes labeled as optimal fear. I'm not quite sure that's quite right, but that that, that there is that energy that comes up. That can can that we label as fear, and if it's if it's at a level that isn't paralyzing, it can often be quite energizing in helping us um, kind of move forward and deal with whatever's going on. Um, she described how sometimes people have trouble with public speaking, and so they'll take certain kinds of drugs that um, inhibit that. Um, that response, and quite often their their talks um, fall kind of flat because there isn't there isn't that energy in the body um, to project and and to um, bring the alertness to the mind. So um, there there's there's also something very beneficial to that to that physiological um, reaction that we have. Yes, talk. I was uh, curious that you ignored the aspect of anger, uh, because many a time the fear uh, ends up in anger, either directed at ourselves or out, uh, out to the rest of the world. Uh, so I was, I was wondering, I'm trying to understand why you stopped that fear. Oh, 
Well, I only had 45 minutes. (laughs) And I think I'm even in more denial about anger than I am about fear. (laughs) For me, most anger ends up frozen as resentment, so it's it's still got a a ways to thaw. But uh, thank you for that comment. Hmm. So you see un- underneath the anger then is, is fear? Well, it's, it's always goes back to ignorance about mm-hmm. some expectation about myself uh, or the is, is, is at the, at the root cause of it. So driving on the freeway, getting caught up by somebody, uh, you know, you get upset about it because of the fact that you go like, I would never do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> so why am I assuming that the other person is exactly like me? So there's expectations, which, you know, so you can sort of, I don't know, I, I reason through it, I don't sit with it. Hmm. So I just say, like, ah, there's some fundamental wrong views that I had. Hmm. I need that. Okay, thanks. Thank you. sharing your um, images of boys on the uh, playground and stuff. That was, I think that was probably the first place in my life where I, I really had that gut feeling that something's not right and people don't like me and I'm not safe. And it was really the um, first time I think I really experienced fear uh, at a gut level. I thought about times that uh, I, I got into scrapes and uh, didn't uh, things didn't end up being turning out the way I wanted them to. And uh, so since then, I, I, you know, I, the worst thing in the world for me is to have a conflict. And uh, so I wonder what your thoughts are about that because uh, you know, there's a bad side to conflict but then turning my back on conflict is a challenge too. And so I'm wondering what you're thinking about the, the good uses of fear as well as the, you know, how, how can you kind of balance out the good uses of, and not good uses? Hmm. Well, I think for me, the, uh, as I said earlier, I, I think the value of fear for me is that it's kind of a wake-up call. What is it that I'm not? What is it that I'm not willing to look at? You know, can I see what's underneath the fear? What's um, what assumptions um, am I living my life by that? You know, that every time I have a conflict, this is going to result in hurt feelings, lost relationships. Um, you know, so f- for me, it's mostly been kind of a, a red light flashing, that there's something to be looked at deeper, more closely here. And it may not, just, just as with anger, it's probably wise not to always act during the state of fear, you know, to, to react out of that place, but to um, but to to let it point to there being something that that wants attention. So I'm not I'm not sure if that's helpful or not. Yeah. Yeah, because there are some things that it's good to be afraid of. Yes, Lynn. Um, one of the one of the reasons I have come to to practice. 
due to a conflict. And um, so I've really worked on dealing with conflict and how to um, address um, injustices or um, just in your everyday life, uh, getting along in society. And um, so I went to several Dharma talks on, on these uh, type of dealing with conflict. And one of the things that really has made me more um, appreciative, I guess, of being able to be with conflict is uh, seeing it as an opportunity to either understand, know, or become more intimate with someone else uh, or something else. And um, I've, I'm just on the eve of getting kind of some, a formal kind of um, explanation of a conflict that I've been working on. And I found this huge amount of fear coming up and just even touching the telephone to call or doing something was just incredible. And then I just sat back and I started to play through the scenarios that might, what if this was the result? What if this was the result? What if this was the result? And when I played through all the possible results, they were all okay. I mean, I could, certainly some were better than others, but nothing I couldn't live with. And actually not knowing or not addressing the issue was certainly much more painful than any of the results could possibly be. And I found that to be just such an unusual finding, mm. you know, that I um, I'm kind of glad that I've come up with it. It's um, been helpful. Great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it reminded me of something that Eugene Cash had talked about, I think, last last Monday, perhaps. Um, he, was, he was talking about anger, and he talked about how if you really stay with anger and, and move and, and work all the way through it, that you reach clarity. And he said that with fear, if you can stay with it and see it and see through it, what you get to is trust and faith. And so uh, I was reminded that when Lynn was talking about um, facing a fearful situation instead of just seeing the fear of having, uh, cultivating some trust that whatever happens will be workable, that you'll be able to um, work with whatever happens. Yeah, Jill. You know, that's so interesting because I have a real close connection between fear and trust. And one of the things that I actually like about fear is that um, it, it, it's always kind of a, um, a reason to trust and to let go. Normally, if I get in a situation where I'm afraid, it's, it's lack of control. It's like things are out of control. It's not predictable. I don't know what's happening. And there's a point where, you know, I generally accept it. <laughs> or it is out of control, and, and there is that point, and, and what it gets replaced with is, is a trust that the, the universe will work out, and I'm going to be okay regardless of what the outcome is. Kind of like what you were talking about. It's like you know I can live with any of these outcomes. And so I've never heard them related though before, and, and that is definitely it, it. Definitely does come if you can let go of the, that fear and just get present somehow. <laughs> Thank you. I think of somewhat that you kind of focus on. Go ahead, Anne. Somewhat that you, um, you know, just um, not try to control things so much. You know, want things to, expect things to, like, to turn out a certain way. You know, just like, you uh, be less likely to be fearful because things, you know, doesn't turn out to be the way you expect it to be. Mm. So maybe sometimes I just feel like if you just kind of lose so much 
more things happening at the same time, you don't know what to do. So maybe just sometimes as you meditate a little more, I have felt like a extreme more confident that things um, just going to turn out fine. Mm. You know, just that just the inner quality that you have, the more uh, calmness and confidence in yourself. You know, just feel like um, she what I'm gonna do when you Thank you. I don't know what you think. Maybe sometimes just when that's just about meditating, I just for the first time ever I felt um, the fear coming up. I, mean, like, uh, I never ever felt before. You know, I was thought before and I'm very conscious and very outgoing, I know how to do everything. I can make things happen. <laughs> I'm a super woman. And suddenly uh, as you meditate, suddenly that fear coming up, just Well, sound like wonderful questions. Yeah, button. Another question. The, the experience of non-self in relation uh, to fear. Uh, have you had an experience of, of non-self in your work with in your working with fear? Uh, hmm. Well, I'm not sure that I could say that I have. I think I think related to that has been when I, when I think of, when I talked about um, fear, uh, ignorance earlier as um, dealing with things that feel threatening. Quite often, quite often, what it is that evokes fear for me is what's threatening my sense of who I think I am. You know that. Um, something that's going to happen that's going to break the illusion that I'm this certain way or that people see me this certain way. Um, and so some of the facing of the fear is just the, is um, just willing to, to, or seeing that I have no choice but to let go of some of the some of the things that I cling to as th- as defining who I am. Have you had that experience? Um, hmm. Yeah, actually, when I think about it, um, this was something that I thought about talking about earlier, but I hadn't. Um, this was before I was practicing. I had been married for 10 years, and one day my wife asked me to sit down, and she said, you know, I I really need to talk to you. Um, I don't want to be in this marriage anymore. And it was like, wow. Um, And she said it very compassionately. It wasn't out of a sense of, um, it wasn't spiteful. You know, it was, I mean, she ended up crying. It was very difficult for both of us. And... What I found myself most contracted around was what are people going to think of me that I'm getting divorced? <laughs> you know, it wasn't, I wasn't thinking about what's going to happen to her or you know, anything else. It really was what are people going to think about me? Are they going to think that I'm, I'm not a good husband, I'm not a good person, all these other things? I mean, I had, I um, went out, I was living in Berkeley at the time, I went out wandering onto the campus 
and I laid on the grass uh, next to the psychology building <laughs> for some reason. And right next to it is this big um, clock that's made out of bushes and, and flowers. And there was part of my mind that was entertaining ending my life. You know, like, boy, this, I just feel awful. This is horrible. And, you know, how am I going to face having to let go of this image that I have of myself as a, a good husband and everything else? And I was laying there, and then suddenly it occurred to me, this is not worth ending your life over. <laughs> this is just ending a marriage. I mean, it was just kind of like there was just like this, okay, I'm going to let go of me as a married person. And I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but it, it took, I mean, it, it was very, very um, uncomfortable and, and painful to hold on to, to, to wanting to be who I thought I was. Um, and then once I let go, it was much, much lighter. I mean, I just, you know, I walked, I went up to the Rose Garden in Berkeley and smelled the roses and um, kind of had a, kind of had a, a real glimpse of what liberation there was in letting go of, of this view I had of, of who I was. But it's still hard. There's, there's, you know, there's got a lot, lot more to let go of. Let's see. I think I, um, I'd like us to sit for another, say, five minutes, just to, to end the evening. So, um. So thank you all for your attention and thank you all for your participation and may you all be free from ignorance and fear. (laughs) 